0: This episode of Shameless is brought to you by TBH Skincare, medically backed topical treatment for acne.
1: It's embarrassing to be seen as an empowered woman sometimes. Like it feels embarrassing. It feels cringy. And I was like, what's something so embarrassing that I really just want to fucking do, but I I feel too embarrassed to do. And it was a sunny day. I had my music on and my earphones and I just laid in the middle of this field where the girls from my school were in the sun, basking in it. And I put my earphones in so if they were saying anything I couldn't hear. And I got through an entire album and I was like, I can do anything after this moment. I I can do fucking anything. And so much courage was born in that moment. Mm.
2: Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the sunshiny Florence Gibbon. For the unacquainted, Florence is nothing short of a force to be reckoned with. The 21-year-old feminist illustrator, writer and activist released her debut book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, in June this year and has gone on to become a number one Sunday Times bestseller. Florence now has a social media following of more than half a million people and has single-handedly carved out one of the most engaged spaces for the queer community online. Florence was enigmatic and electric and we cannot wait for you to hear this episode because we left it feeling like we could actually take on the world. Just a heads up with this one guys towards the end of the interview you might get a glimpse of the busy London traffic as of course Floss was recording this in her London apartment. Here's Florence. Florence Given, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. What a fucking delight. We have been waiting. I think we tried to organize this a couple of months ago. I was sick, but we are finally
0: here. It is finally happening. Thank you so much for having me. I tell you what, no amount of tech headaches as well doing this from Melbourne to London will stop us either. So let's see how this goes. Florence, we start every interview in the same way, which is to say, what are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to someone? listening
1: oh okay reading watching listening at the moment so I just finished watching you me her on Netflix which is a series about polyamorous ruffle and it's kind of it's disgustingly white and it's disgustingly it's very cringy but for that reason it's very entertaining it's like it's really trying to say something but it's also still very white and still quite boring I feel like there's there's still a lot there's still a lot of stereotypes in it and there's still a lot of like you know they cast a person of color as like the best friends and no lead roles and all of this kind of stuff and like it's queer but there's still a lot of stereotypes in it but I still love to watch it that's the first thing that's come to my head I've just been watching it because they released a new season and it's it's quite cringy at times (laughs) but yeah definitely I'm enjoying (laughs) it in a trash way
2: (laughs) well I'll tell you right now no no one has recommended that thus far. So that's one for us to check like, yeah, out. For yeah. sure. I, I,
1: mean, I don't know if I'd even recommend it. I'm like that, but that's generally <laughs> what I'm watching right now. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm in between moving out of my old flat, and that's just what has been coming off on my Netflix. <laughs>
2: Love it. Florence, what were you like as a kid? We ask everyone this question How would you have described yourself if you met you as a child?
1: extremely dramatic I was I loved drama and in in the sense of like performing drama and I I was obsessed with Lady Gaga so I was like a Lady Gaga know-it-all and I would go up to my friends and be like I bet you anything you can ask me about Lady Gaga I can tell you anything and I was basically in love with her for a very long time I used to sit in front of the the TV screen when she was like doing performances on the VMAs and stuff and just cry my eyes out like in my Lady Gaga costume (laughs) so I I was absolutely obsessed with Lady Gaga and yeah I think I I was I've always been very curious and very inquisitive about the world and about things in general and I think that attitude has stayed with me forever and so has the the dramatic aspect as well <laughs> I still very like even in my fashion and stuff I love to be really bold and I think actually I read something that was like the people who are happiest are the people who stay in touch with the things that brought them joy in childhood And I have very luckily managed to harness that joy and keep it and managed to turn it into a career and something that I don't have to let go of, which is amazing.
0: I love that so much. And I think it's probably why we're always so intrigued about who people are as children, because I'm always so intrigued as to like how much they evolve or change or choose to kind of stay the same. We want to know, you went to an all girls high school and have said that you were bullied quite a lot there. What are your memories from that time? (laughs)
1: not very nice to be honest with you it was it was like the last few years of high school is when the bullying started but before that you know it's something I'm still unpacking now I'm, I'm 21 and high school was about six years ago and when I say I'm unpacking it now I mean I'm learning that what I experienced was bullying but it was also narcissistic abuse and it was this very controlling manipulative like girl group and there was like a leader in the group and we would all just do anything for her and you were kind of following her out of fear and it was this really scary thing and if and if you acted out or she could sense that you were like gaining autonomy and making new friends outside the group she would either completely sabotage you and, and ruin your reputation in the school which is what happened to me And then I was just eventually ousted and then I became one of the people that she was horrible to. Or you would do something to make up for it. Very, very mean girls in the sense that with the cliques, you know, and I didn't like the person I was becoming in that group. I didn't like that I had to stay silent when she was doing something or like saying something mean about someone to stay in this group. And I think the worst thing when you're a young girl is the feeling of being isolated and the fear of standing out and having a differing opinion and I think this is something that sticks out even today even in the workplace wherever you are in a friendship group it's uncomfortable to have the opposing opinion and to stick up because it feels like a social death because you're what are people going to think of you and all of this kind of stuff And I basically, I was kicked out the friendship group. They found out that I had an eating disorder and it got spread around the school like gossip. So instead of receiving support, I was completely isolated. And I basically was on my own for a few years and then made friends in different classes. And it was choosing to leave that group and stay out instead of groveling back like I would have done before that made me the person I am today. That's that's probably the biggest decision I ever made was, was not groveling back for... The approval of fitting in, because I realised I didn't need to. Brené Brown says an amazing thing. She says you don't need to belong to a group of people because you belong to yourself and it's so much more important to belong to yourself authentically than it is to belong to a group of people where you're forced to suppress your desires and suppress the things you care about and from then on I just became like the loudest outspoken person about the things I care about since and I think if it wasn't for that switch that went off in my head of feeling like this isn't this isn't serving me there was there was something in my head that didn't feel like it was serving me, and that there was something bigger for me to do if I didn't listen to that, then I would still be in my hometown judging other women and playing it very small. I said to my friend recently, "I'd never want to get to the end of my life feeling like I played it small just because I wanted other women to like me. That's something that we face all the time, especially in the workplace and our friendship groups, is that we play parts of ourselves down because we don't want to appear intimidating to other women and I talk a lot about the male gaze and how women shrink themselves in front of men but in my experience I do it more with women and it's because of this intimidation thing of we don't want to seem like quote-unquote that girl or we don't want to be the outspoken person because then we cause a rift And, and it's very it is very isolating and it's 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 a big choice to make choosing yourself over pleasing others but every time I've made that decision it's been the best thing I ever did in my life.
2: I want to know do you have complicated feelings towards all girls high schools? I also went to an all girls Catholic school and the feminist part of me would love to think that it's this feminist utopia and that you're raised to I guess really cherish the women in your lives and it's a very nourishing supportive environment but I had a very similar experience to you Florence I don't have many good things to say about going to an all girls high school How do you feel about that? Kind of looking back on that time of your life and feeling like all girls high schools in reality do unfortunately very much play into that stereotype that when women are shoved together, they can be quite bitchy and quite snarky.
1: Mm, I think, you know, I don't want to paint it all with the same brush because there were people who in my school who probably had very good, healthy friendships. I just fell into this horrible, abusive group, like emotionally abusive group. It felt like a cult. Um, And I think, yeah, I don't want to paint all schools with the same brush, but any any person I've spoke to has had a very similar experience to mine. And I think there are benefits to being with women. I actually asked my followers this question last year, and people were saying that it encouraged their self-esteem because there weren't any boys in the classroom. So a lot of girls were actually performing more in class. They were putting their hand up more like on on a statistical level girls who go to girls' schools put their hands up more in class because they're not thinking about how they look when they do it because there's no boys in the room. We're not encouraged to monitor our image as much. But saying that, it actually became more of a competition in my school about which girl could look the best. it kind of became this thing where we would, yeah, it was. we almost did it for each other, like for the female gaze. It was very strange.
0: I think that's absolutely a thing, though. I think the female gaze is a different kettle of fish to the male gaze, but something that seems quite legitimate. I want to mm-hmm. know what's very obvious with you in, you know, just a couple of minutes of talking to you is that your voice is so strong and so decisive. And I want to know where you found your voice. I mean, did it come from... Experience did it come with time do you think you've always had a pretty decisive voice
1: I think so yeah I think I've always had a skill set for making big concepts digestible and understandable I've always been able to articulate myself in expressing my emotions and my feelings because I I've, I've been journaling since I was about 14 years old so I had a diary and that was when I was cut out of the group at school I went to the bookstore I googled I've always googled everything so when I was like 14 I was like what is this heart palpitations in my chest when, when, when I'm when I'm scared and it was like oh you have anxiety and I developed anxiety about going into school and then it was like how do you cure anxiety how do you get rid of it whatever and it was like oh practice mindfulness or practice meditation and all the breathing exercises so then I bought these books on meditation and mindfulness and I, I remember just like reading them outside of school, when I was doing my GCSEs. And I something in the book said, take yourself out of your comfort zone and do something that frightens you and scares you, but doesn't put you in any danger. And I walked to the nearest park to where I lived in Plymouth. And I laid in the middle of the park where there were the girls from my school. I was like, what's, what's the most embarrassing thing? And it was, it was the fear of being seen alone doing something that looks really cringy and like liberating. I think that's a whole other conversation as well. It's like, it's embarrassing to be seen as an empowered woman sometimes. Like it feels embarrassing, it feels cringy. And I was like, what's something so embarrassing that I really just want to fucking do, but I I feel too embarrassed to do? And it was a sunny day. I had my music on and my earphones and I just laid in the middle of this field where the girls from my school were. And I just laid there in the sun, basking in it. And I put my earphones in, so if they were saying anything, I couldn't hear. And I got through an entire album, and I was like, I can do anything after this moment. I, I can do fucking anything. And so much courage was born in that moment to just kind of deflect what other people thought about me. And it kind of became an exercise that I still do today. And even during lockdown, I, I experienced something in my personal life that really shook me. And I was like, okay, how the, How am I gonna? How am I gonna get over this? How am I gonna make myself feel like? Like I like myself again, like I can just get the fuck out of bed and do something. And I rode my bike around Hackney in my bra. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was it was sunny. And I was like, because there were so many, so many elements of courage of that. Is is there's one is being spotted in public is becoming like increasing for me, especially when my book came out. That was a lot. And then men also. So I was scared of the harassment of men. And I was like, Do you know what? Put your earphones in again. We're going to do this, and you're going to ride your bike around Hackney in your bra in the sun because it's what you want to do. So do it, and I did it, and it was great. I think so. so to, to answer your point, how am I how am I so articulate while I ride my bike? I ride my bike in my bra. I think I do things out of courage, and then I learn from those experiences. Like if something's not challenging me, I don't want it. I, I don't. I don't want something that's not going to stretch me and help me become the best version of myself because. Since you're born into this world, everything's bashed out of you. Any sense of identity is bashed out of you. So I think it's holding on to those bits of me that are creative, are expressive, are pure, pure expression, and holding on to those bits and holding on to those bits of joy and writing about them and writing about my mistakes and holding myself accountable and also acknowledging past behaviors and doing all of that kind of stuff. It's like, it's really uncomfortable work, but I think. I'm not afraid to really look at myself. And that is why I can speak with such confidence about things because I really know who the fuck I am. Mm.
2: Speaking of fear and challenging yourself and finding confidence, what was the plan for your career in those really messy high school days? What were you thinking you were going to end up doing in your 20s?
1: The plan for my career when I was 14. (laughs) (laughs) I I I wasn't thinking about a career. It even feels weird at 21 to say I have a career, and that I've had a career for a few years. It feels very strange. Yeah. I I didn't really have a plan for my career. I was making a lot of art. I was making a lot of artwork. So when I was in high school, again, that was like another outlet for me was making artwork. And I started drawing naked women. My art teacher, Mr. Varrell, gave me a a fashion illustration book. And there was lots of naked women illustrations in it. And I was like, this is amazing. Can I draw these? And he was (laughs) like, yeah, sure. Go for it. So he was like, I thought that you had to just draw like roses for your art GCSE when you're like 15 or 16. And he was like, yeah, go for it. Like If you want to do it, go for it. So that's where I developed my style. And if I didn't pick up that book, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today, which is just mad. And I basically just fell in love with drawing naked women. And then I went to art school to study fashion between 16 and 18. And then there was a fashion illustration section on that. And then I just it just set my soul on fire. And I was like, OK, there's a pattern here. You know, you've got to keep doing this. And then I went to London College of Fashion for a year for university, which was supposed to be a three-year course. But I dropped out after the first year because my work was taking off so much. So I didn't really know what I was doing. It, there's been a lot going on for me over the past few years. And I think everyone assumes I had this plan. But I didn't. I had, I was just kind of, just going and putting shit out there and trusting that I had something good going and trusting it enough to drop out of university to put everything into it. And I think, yeah, yeah, there was, there was never really a plan. There was just a kind of following an intuition because there was nowhere, there was no one I could look, there was no one I could look up to and be like, okay, I want their job. There was like an idea of something, but now now I get to do, there are so many assets of my career that I, that I love that I get to do. And yeah, I think more people are becoming like that now, that there's more people doing multiple things all, all at the same time.
0: It does feel like your core message, and you've already mentioned it a couple of times right now, is encouraging women to invest in themselves, and mm. particularly in a world that tells women that they probably shouldn't be doing that. I want to know at what point you started to really back yourself and at what point you realized how important it was to lack yourself because, I mean, you are only 21. I feel like a lot of 21-year-olds aren't even nearly at that point where they're understanding that yet.
1: Yeah, totally, and I, I get that question all the time. I don't really know what to say to it. I don't know how... I, would, I wouldn't say it was even a conscious decision to back myself. I, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but it's what I was doing, you know? I think on reflection now I can say, yeah, absolutely. Me choosing to stay outside of that friendship group and grow from that shell of a human that I was, that was me backing myself. I just didn't know that that's what I was doing. I dumped my ex-boyfriend two and a half years ago. That was one of the biggest, biggest decisions I ever made to back myself because I couldn't even afford the rent. So, so we moved into the place I just moved out of. I couldn't afford that rent for and cover two people two and a half years ago. But I knew... That the other option was complete fucking misery, staying with him. So I was like, you know what? I can either keep him here, keep this horrible man here, and have you know the other half of the rent covered, or I can get rid of him and um, blindly trust the process that this is all going to fucking work out. And then I got my book deal a week later, so it all worked out. And I think again, that was me <laughs> backing myself and literally walking into my own arms and it's scary because it feels like there's it feels like when you make a big decision like that that there's no safety net but you always have yourself and as long as you're backing yourself like me making that decision was like the best thing i've ever done and and i moved into a bigger place because i could afford the rent and you know so, so it was like investing in myself and believing that i could do it and that there was there was something bigger out there for me than the abusive relationship I was in I had no idea how much it was impacting me because on paper I was quote unquote successful when I was doing this and I was doing exhibitions and I still knew that there was more I knew there was more for me and I just yeah got rid of him and uh, chose myself instead
2: I feel like the dump him narrative is one that is central to what you have built. And you told the independent last year, I dumped my boyfriend and realized that I had been pouring so much of my time and energy into someone who had no intention of giving it back. I was running on empty. And for what I'd been constantly trying to fix and grow someone when I could have been putting that energy into myself. Why do you think so many women stay in average relationships like that where they are serving potentially their male partner, but they are in turn depriving themselves?
1: I think women's default, our default reaction is not to think about what we want, but about what other people want. And because of that default and how we are socialized to have our reactions to any question, any situation, it, it's, it's not about us ever. And because of that, because we are socialized to pander to everybody else, it comes out in our relationships. You know, we're told from day one that that we are natural caregivers and and nurturers and and we witness in childhood maybe our parents and and the gender roles that they play out. And it is is so tied up in gender roles as well because I don't have that same pull to mother someone I'm dating when I'm dating a woman or a non-binary person because there's no gender roles present. All of a sudden, I'm 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 like oh oh so I don't know I don't have to perform anything oh my god and it's and it's the most like breathtaking fucking thing is not having to perform gender roles and I think that's what I like to do. I'm such a a unique I guess position on this narrative as a bisexual person who has dated men and also dates women because bisexuals like it's, it's wild because you, you go in, in between these two very different worlds and you see so starkly the difference between what it's like to date men and women and also what comes out of you when you date men and when you date women and I think just to go back to I've gone off tangent here but to your question about why women settle we are socialized to hate ourselves, it's like we are programmed to not like ourselves. So if we're raised to accept crumbs of validation from men, from systems of power, from from people telling us we look pretty, all of all of this stuff, we are socialized to accept those crumbs. We're going to accept those crumbs in in any way, shape, or form. And if you believe on a, on a cellular level that your worth is tied up in what men think of you then you were going to accept whatever they throw your way I was oh my god I think it's like people must assume that like because I am this way now that like I've just always been this way I was the biggest like oh my god I used to cry about men all the time like I remember yearning after boys when I was younger and 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 like pining after this one guy for like two years who didn't like me and then when he told me two years later when he changed his mind I all of a sudden didn't like him and it was like all of all of this all of this stuff like and yeah my ex-boyfriend it was it was it was an abusive relationship and it was it was really really bad but there was also this caretaking role that I was performing oh no it just it cringes me out is I realized it was just before I dumped him I rang my mum crying and I was like Mom, I feel like I want to break up with him. I, I just feel this, this, this. And then she went, Floss, it sounds like you've become his mum. And then I was like, oh my god, and I got the ick instantly. I was like, oh my fucking god. And then I dubbed him the next day. I <laughs> think that was that's where my um stop raising him, he's not your son quote comes from. <laughs> because I it's so embarrassing when you realize that the way you treat your boyfriend your husband whatever the man in your life is to you you've been treating him like a, a child and um, also you both enable it and it's like why do we do this yes, it's it's disgusting it's heteronormativity like. Ugh.
0: And so many of us just fall into it, I think, without even like realizing that that's what's happening. Another one of your quotes that I loved, you told Grazia, I think I've had to dampen my passion, vigor, and outspokenness about patriarchy, and now that I'm no longer in a relationship with a man and I don't care for the opinion of men, I have basically stepped out of fear and into myself. Did you feel particularly when you were younger and dating that you had to dampen your passion to fit a version of yourself that was, I guess, ostensibly more palatable?
1: Yeah, I am somebody. I did a QA on my Instagram the other day. I I love doing that. We were talking about how often the things that people make you feel shameful for are the gateways to you discovering your power. So, especially if you're in an abusive relationship, emotional, physical, whatever, or even just a toxic friendship where someone is constantly jealous of you and wants to stagnate your growth they will prevent you from growing by making you feel guilty and shameful of the things that bring you joy. And I remember with my ex-boyfriend, he said to me, it would, he would like, Floss, it's 9am, I don't want to talk about fucking patriarchy. <laughs> and he made me feel so embarrassed about self-help books. And self-help books is ultimately what led me to discovering myself today and then eventually writing one. So I think all, all of these things that that people make you feel shameful of, actually the things that unlock your power and I remember when I would come to London to go to events to meet like-minded people he would sabotage the evening to the point to make me feel so guilty about going that I wouldn't go and it's this emotional manipulation to get me to stay in a place that I'm still using him to feel good about myself. So he never wanted me to grow because if I grew, I would eventually realize that, oh my God, what am I doing with this, pa- for this person? And yeah, people will block the gateways to your power just by making you feel shame about it. And I think before him, like it was, I, I was with him for a few years. So before that, it was like, wasn't really dating anyone. I was like fucking 15, 16. But with women, I haven't felt that there's any squashing of me talking about this kind of stuff. I've had people on dates tell me I'm too much and, like, tell me that I'm too, like... And have done, like, impressions of me on a date like by, like, flailing their arms after I've spoke because I'm so expressive with my body language. So there's, like, people who will make you feel too much, but I've never had it with women where it's, like, made me feel too much about talking about sexism or racism or anything like Mm. that. I think they kind of know
2: what the game is for when they take me. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up after the break, what Florence would change about social media if she was given a chance. But first, let's hear from today's sponsor. Zara, TBH Skincare clearly knows their stuff because after launching just over six months ago, they already have more than 4,000 very happy
0: customers. They do. I've seen some incredible result photos on their Instagram highlights, Mish, all from customers using a range of TBH Skincare's vegan, cruelty-free and Australian-made skincare products. The biofilm hack, abbreviated to TBH, knows just how painful hormonal breakouts can be and is on a mission to help you feel your best. Yep, TBH ...produces medically-backed skincare for acne-prone skin... ...without the nasty side effects of some prescription products... Formulated with X-Bio Technology, TBH's Acne Hat Cream is a non-toxic, gentle treatment for acne.
2: The TBH range consists of that popular acne Hack cream you just mentioned, Zara, alongside a cleanser and silicone cleansing brush, both of which you can get in their bougie bundle for just $135. That awesome
0: deal saves you guys a total of $30, and you can still use the code SHAMELESS at checkout on top of any sale too. How good's that? That is so good. That is the code
2: SHAMELESS at TBH Skincare com for 15% off any bundle.
0: Thank you so much to TBH Skincare for making this episode of Shameless possible.
2: Florence, this is going to sound so random, but as you were talking then about people, I guess, wanting you to feel smaller and not sit in your own power. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of something that I saw in your Instagram account not too long ago. You posted about the incredible success that your book has had and you posted, I, I can't remember the number of weeks, but it broke a record for the youngest ever British author to Mm. sit. Was it the Sunday Times bestseller list? You broke an incredible record.
1: 12 weeks, three months. Yeah.
2: Congratulations. Mm -hmm. What I loved about that was you sat in that power, that you owned that and you said, fuck yes, I've done something that's really incredible that no other person Mm. has done before. Is that something Mm. that you consciously did to push back on the narrative that women who achieve success need to pretend that it happened by accident or that Mm. they're so lucky to achieve Mm. this?
1: It's so funny (laughs) you say that because I haven't fully accepted it yet. You say, like, I really stood in my power. I don't think I did it enough. Like, I, that is probably the, my friends are like, you need to be fucking shoving this in everyone's face. (laughs) And it's something, I I did one Instagram post. I've actually hardly spoke about that. And I think if it wasn't for my team and my management, I'm just being honest with you. Like, I didn't genuinely want to shout about it. That was uncomfortable for me to do. And if it wasn't for my management team telling me, okay, let's do a post about this, I probably wouldn't because <laughs> it was really, it was really, like, surreal, and also, when, when you achieve something, there's always an expectation of how you should react, and how you should respond, and I think anytime there's expectations involved, it makes me feel a lot of pressure, so yeah, if it wasn't for my team and all my friends telling me, you broke a fucking record, you dickhead, talk about it, like, I, I probably would, I maybe would have done, like, one little thing about it, but I wanted to really celebrate it. And also because I wouldn't have been able to do this without my community. So I did a little thing where I asked people to post pictures with my book. And then I posted them on my grid to celebrate because, yeah, like it's it's super cool. It's, it's the youngest person to ever do that. And that's, I think it's just very overwhelming. But my work isn't done yet. So I, I don't, I genuinely, it's a really confusing relationship to have with your success when you don't get validation from the success you get validation from the results but everyone else expects you to get validation from the success and the achievements and the accomplishments so it's almost like like I love when someone tells me I came out to my parents because of you I love when, when someone tells me I divorced my fucking husband after I read your book like that shit is powerful and that is what makes me right write, write, keep doing this because you are uh, helping women unlock them fucking selves because patriarchy stopped them from feeling like they have a say in their own lives. That is the shit that makes me feel so proud and I could genuinely shout about that all day. So when there's this stereotypical like success achievement thing that actually I don't get my validation from that, it's really confusing to then have to celebrate.
0: It's a funny one. I mean, speaking of all of this influence, last year in 2019, you were named Cosmopolitan's Influencer of the Year. (laughs) I want to know how you're starting to feel particularly now the book has sold stupid amounts about that influence and that responsibility. I mean, you've said already you feel overwhelmed by everything that's happened in the last few months, but how kind of cognizant are you of that social media influence and that responsibility?
1: Not really at all. And I don't feel any fucking responsibility at all, honestly, because I choose I choose to show up on social media every single day and it's not an obligation. I don't interact with it out of guilt or obligation to my community, to my followers. And I think one of the things that I do differently, I'm not saying I'm the only one, but to a lot of influencers is that I assert boundaries with my community so that I do not feel obligated to show up there every day. And that it creates a really different shift with your audience. And I think the relationship you have with your audience is a relationship. And you don't have a relationship without boundaries. And I, I tell my followers that they don't answer DMs because the stuff that I talk about, I get I get so many messages from people. For it's, here's my phone number. Can you ring me? I need some advice. And it's, it's constant, constant, constant asking, 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 and taking, taking, taking. And I understand if someone doesn't have like a knowledge of boundaries or oversharing and this kind of stuff but it is a lot and I refuse to feel obligated to respond to hundreds of people's problems I refuse to be a codependent to the world if if I didn't have the boundaries I absolutely would be helping everyone sort their shit out but that's not healthy and I refuse to engage with social media out of obligation because then I I would become resentful of it and I have a, a much healthier relationship with it because I don't feel responsible for Helping everyone. I put out content that I want people to see, that I think people should listen to. I amplify the voices of people who maybe don't have as big a platform as me, or people who have a voice that I don't have from an experience that I don't have. So, when it comes to responsibility, I think influencers do have a responsibility to be careful with their content, to be careful about what they say. But I refuse to change my message based on the fact that I now have half a million followers. And at the beginning of the year, I had half the amount of that. And I I don't want to change that. And also, I think that the thing is, is that to other people, they see a bigger number. To me, it's still me just holding my phone out and talking to the phone. And I think that's why it feels so intimate. I forget that thousands of people watch my stories every day. Every time you do something like that, it's almost like a press release. So many people see it and it's 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 quite nerving, but also it's not because it's just me talk it looks like i'm just talking in the mirror when i when i open up the front camera and i'm talking about all of this stuff so i think there's um, there's there's not been a, a felt Change in responsibility because I've always been showing up in social media in the same way, which is that I do talk about politics. So I understand if you're an influencer who's never spoke about politics, who's never spoke about racism, they might be feeling a shift of shit. I need to be responsible. I need to be talking about this, but I've always been talking about this. So for me, it's just kind of constant, and I'm just engaging with it in a way that serves me as well as also serving the purpose that I'm trying to do, which is open people's minds. And it can be really mm-hmm. exhausting to hold space for thousands of people when you're not just giving them content you're not just giving them pictures of like a beautiful apartment or 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 selfies or whatever which I'm not shaming that by the way that's fucking incredible when women do that I just love women doing anything but what I mean is when I'm actively trying to change people's minds I'm the scapegoat for when they feel challenged so I'm the one who gets the projection I'm the one who gets the blame I'm the one who men hate because their girlfriends dump them. It's quite a scary position to be in because you end up just becoming the scapegoat for other people's bullshit.
2: That actually rolls really nicely into my next question. I was going to ask you, as someone with half a million followers and who has cultivated this incredible movement, you have seen the best of social media, particularly the best of Instagram, but you've also copped the worst. If you could change one thing about social media or in particular Instagram, because I feel like that is really where your brand shines the most, what would you change?
1: I think the thing I would change is how people interact with it, but you can't, cha- can't control humans. You can't change the way because that, that's the human side of it. You know, It's like, yes, social media is great. It can also be shit but it's either great or shit depending on the person interacting with the platform. And I think the thing that I would change is the reactionary aspect of it because it is a reaction. And when you react, you react from your ego, not from a conscious place of challenging that thought that comes up for you. And the the initial thoughts that we have about things, the, the envy, the hatred, the, the judgmental thoughts about that we have about people that comes from the ego every single time. And with Instagram, with a quick story reply, with with a reaction emoji, with comments when you see something and it's news, but it's made to be sensationalist. So you react, you react, you react. And it creates this thing of, especially, especially if you're a content creator, you're someone who's on the receiving end of a lot of other people's ego reactions. And it's hard to not internalize other people's bullshit when it's right in front of you in black and white, without the tone, without the emotion, without you being able to objectively say, this person calling me this name is not about me. This is about their bullshit. You know, it can be really hard to do that when it isn't black and white. But I think, yeah, no, the, the one thing I would, the aspect I would change about it is that that's the only thing that I don't like. And it's probably why I've enjoyed the book so much because it's not reactionary. People have to intentionally go to the bookstore, buy the book, read the book, sit with the feelings. That, they can't comment. They can't write a comment on my book about something they've just, they have to sit in that feeling before they process it, you know? And I think it's the same with podcasts, people can't respond automatically to a podcast. And I like that it feels, it feels more intentional because I like things that people can respond to rather than react. And a response is something that you've you've thought about. You've thought about, okay, so I I think that woman's a fucking bitch. Is she acting a bitch or does she remind me of the person I want to be and I'm just projecting and I'm just t- I'm calling her a bitch because it makes me feel better about the fact that I can't set boundaries. And people don't think that way typically on Instagram. And that's something I speak about in my book that I want to encourage people to utilize Instagram as a mirror to kind of look at what you're seeing and the feelings that come up, question them are they about this person or are they about you and I'm not talking to the point of self-doubting your own emotions about something that is objectively bad I'm talking about people just living their lives people doing stuff that isn't harming you and feeling like you want to judge them and talk about them with your friends and yeah I want to kind of move away from that and I think the thing with I know this for a fact that my book has women are judging each other less and sleeping with each other more because <laughs> i think that is something that is something i can say i'm very proud of see i am so happy to talk about that kind of accomplishment about about the actual impact it's it's the it's the uh the achievement stuff that kind of makes me feel like uncomfortable
0: I mean, this was such a brilliant segue because one of my favorite quotes from your book was internalized misogyny is the silent, insidious killer of progress. And when it shows up in our lives, it can make us act out in all kinds of ugly ways. I did really love that line, insidious killer of progress. Mm. How have you seen internalized misogyny kind of manifest around you? And how have you kind of tackled it in your own mind?
1: So... I say it's the silent insidious killer because it's like a poison and it just kind of it it filters through and it's like it trickles down from men so even if even within queer communities there is so much internalized misogyny so even when men aren't in the picture and it's just the gays there's still so much internalized misogyny you ask me if I've seen it play out and I have seen it play out I've seen it play out And the reason I've seen it play out is because I have also done it myself. So it's like, you know, when you can see something and you can recognize it because you've done it too. And I see women in the industry, like slandering people, discrediting people, judging other women purely based on the fact that this is a successful woman and women are expected to live up to pristine morals and pristine values when like men can do whatever they want and we forget about it all the time. And it's it's this different standard that we hold women to, that's internalised misogyny, because we expect women to be these fucking angel goddesses. Women telling me my body hair's ugly on Instagram, so why are you even here following me, if that's what you think? (laughs) There is... Oh, something that I found in myself that was internalised misogyny was prioritising and placing a higher value on my masculine traits because the female ones in my mind are quote unquote weak so it would be stuff like I used to pride myself on the fact that I don't pack a lot when I go away I'd be like yeah I don't need all that stuff like with my friends I'd be like, yeah I don't need all that stuff I just don't just don't need it and then I realized that that was a way to, for me to separate myself from p- uh, prettiness and femininity because in my mind that was something weak and that was something to be looked down upon and made me not like the other girls. I used to just oh, Instagram stalk like my exes and all of, all of that and just compare myself to other women and send myself into this like shame spiral of comparing every aspect of my life to hers and then finding comfort when I would see something I would consider a flaw in her. All of this stuff is disgusting. And you ask me how I challenge it. I wrote about this in my book, I flip it around in my mind. So if I see, if I have like a judgmental thought about a woman or part of me feels this this urge to to shrink or to to whatever, I actually don't have that anymore. And I think it's because you see what you see in yourself. And I feel so abundant in who I am that I see in other women and I want to make them feel the fucking same. So I've actually had a really, this is why it's the key, is just liking who you are first. That's like the first battle that everyone has to win is liking who you are and I think yeah I'll flip it around so if I see a woman uh, my, my initial thought is something like let's say a friend is like shagging loads of guys and my first thought is what a slag what a slut like she should really be careful she has no standards or whatever I question any thought that comes up in my head and I'll just say does that thought even belong to me where did this come from like why is she a slut for for doing this when when I would never say that about a man you know she's not a slut she's just exercising her right to use her body the way she fucking wants to and then it's like flipping it around anytime something comes up in your head just turning it turning it on its head into something that empowers the person instead and I wrote in my book about like you know when we see older women wearing like you know tight bodycon dress in the UK anyway like older women wearing tight bodycon dresses in the club and you know I've been, I've been out with friends before and we've all kind of thought what the hell is she doing like out in that dress flipping it around in your head and going wow in spite of ageism in spite of the fact that people like us who will judge this woman she fucking went out and did it anyway what a legend and the same way as with flipping it on your head about divorced women you know we pity divorced women but actually she successfully escaped a situation that she was unhappy in I hope I have the courage to do that one day what a fucking icon and it's like flipping it around in your head all the time to kind of empower women as opposed to belittle them and make them feel small. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I love it so much. It was so refreshing. And what I found interesting in your book was another line that said, I often think about how much the younger version of myself would have hated the person I am today. Yeah. This is our second last question. I wish we could talk to you for four hours, but we've only (laughs) got one. So tell us what did you mean by that?
1: Okay. So first of all, like my gender presentation has changed so much. And I think. Younger Floss would have hated me because I look a bit more queer. She would have looked at me and have thought, probably thought some homophobic bullshit about me, whatever. I would have hated Florence Gibbon because she's doing what I want to do. She's living her truth. She's being loud. She's being outspoken. She's growing out her body hair. Like I would have hated Florence Gibbon if I was an insecure 15, 16 year old. And I think that is a sign of growth because it means I've just stepped into the person I always wanted to be. And when I say I would have hated her, I mean, because I was so insecure, I, I really so badly wanted to be myself. And I just resented all the women around me who were doing that. So I would have hated me because that's what I'm doing now. And it means, all. and also when I was, 15, 16, you know, that's when I was still had all of these narratives, all of these homophobic, racist, sexist narratives in my head that had yet to be unlearned because they were still very much being programmed into me so I was still in a place of thinking that women had a certain way to be, you know to an extent, I have always kind of questioned things, I've never had a hard time questioning and interrogating my family my mum said that to me recently, she was like you know, like You used to have a hard time asserting yourself with men, but she was like, but never with us. You always called us out on our bullshit.
0: Florence, our last question for you is the same for everyone, and it may be a very easy flow on from that answer. But with all of this in mind, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life?
1: Oh, it's being happy wherever I am, and I can be happy wherever I am. I just moved out from this tiny shoebox flat where there was a leak in the fucking ceiling every other month, like a new one somewhere. And I was moving this vase around. and I was like trying to collect the new leaf. And I was still so happy. Happiness to me is feeling, I think there are fleeting moments of joy, like extreme amounts of joy that you can experience and euphoria. But yeah, and actually going off the word euphoria, I think feeling euphoric in myself, in in feeling like I'm doing something that is in so fucking aligned with who I am. When all the dots of me feel connected, that's what happiness is to me. If that doesn't make sense, if that sounds a bit vague, that can literally mean wearing an outfit that, that feels like my mood. That could feel like being in a place where everyone around me is happy also that could be making a decision that feels uncomfortable in the moment but I know I'm gonna fucking be grateful for doing it later that those moments where I'm so aligned with what's good for me that's when I feel the most empowered and the most happy.
2: Florence Given you are fucking sunshine personified thank you so much we are huge fans of yours This book is incredible. We'll give a big spiel to it at the end of the episode, but we are just incredibly grateful that you gave us your time today.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Florence Gibbon. If you're wanting more from Florence, go buy her book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty. We will pop the link in our show notes. It is incredible. You can also find Florence on Instagram at Florence Gibbon. If you enjoyed this chat, we recommend you listen to our other In Convo eps with Clementine Ford and Jamila Jamil. I will pop the links to those chats in our show notes too. As for us, the best way to support the show is to click follow if you're on Spotify or if you're listening on Apple, click subscribe. That helps us find new listeners every single week. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday.